so researchers said, let's break this down. Like, what makes up perfectionism? And so there was a researcher who created this test called the Multidimensional Perfectionism Scale. It was developed by Robert Frost. And so he identified six different factors that are usually displayed by people who struggle with perfectionism. One of the things that they found is it really is this sort of excessive concern over making mistakes that contributes to people who have more difficulty. Because if I am so concerned, like just what we were talking about earlier with outcomes, if I'm trying to mitigate a potential ill outcome, aren't I going to be really concerned and probably not show up? Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. I'm sure you've heard it said before, to air is human. And yet, I think that while many of us have heard that statement, a lot of us also still prefer to not err, and dare I say, be perfect. Yes. And even though I wouldn't attest to saying, oh, I'm really striving to reach perfection, you know, there's this little voice, and I think all of us hear it at different times in different ways, that says, If only you did, you coulda, woulda, shoulda done a little Mm. bit better, and then you could have gotten what you wanted. I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that there's a part of us that is always attempting to reach a variation of perfect. And there's obviously an ism to that, perfectionism, and there's sides of it. There's healthy sides of perfectionism, which is striving towards greatness, which is a good thing. And then there's this unhealthy side where you strive to the point where you you never get there and your pursuit is only the perfection. And you sort of miss out on the journey. Yeah, I sometimes joke around everybody is sort of to some degree appropriately neurotic, mm. right? Like we all have our sort of habits or ways like, you know, and, and generally speaking, there's sort of a range of appropriately neurotic. Well, <laughs> the same thing we could say that there's in terms of perfectionism that there's a way that it works better for everybody and there's a way in which it definitely doesn't work to your advantage you know i'm sure we've talked about brene brown before but if you haven't heard of her go check her out once upon a time she worked for the university of houston in their College of Social Work um, before she went on to do a ton of research around shame and vulnerability and connection. And so she actually distinguishes between perfectionism and healthy behavior. And she says, and I quote, perfectionism is not the same thing as striving to be your best. Perfection 
is not about healthy achievement and growth. Perfectionism is used by many people as a shield to protect against the pain of blame, judgment, or shame. So really, perfectionism as a construct is this sense of sort of being on a like a gerbil on a wheel, like never enough, never enough, never enough, right? Because I always could do more. And so Psychology Today in one of their articles said, perfection, of course, is an abstraction and an impossibility in reality. And striving for it can actually lead to procrastination, a tendency to avoid challenges, rigidity in thinking, and overall lack of creativity. That doesn't sound like it works so well for much of anyone, does it? No, I guess the lack of creativity will come when you put so much pressure on yourself that you feel like any direction you go or move is not in the perfect direction. And so you just don't move or your movements that you take aren't as creative because you have limits and boundaries that are, you know, sort of perceived but not real. Yeah, there's so many ways I can talk about creativity as a thing, but it really comes from who we are Mm -hmm. as people. So I really can't think of a more vulnerable way in which we show up in the world than being creative. And that can be, goodness gracious, just about anything. Yeah, I mean, you can be creative as a parent. Yeah. You can be creative as a husband or wife. You can be creative as a business partner, creative as a individual, just putting yourself out to the world with no real feedback. Mm-hmm. There's really no limit to how you can perceive creativity. And this is why vulnerability is so intertwined with it. Because when I'm being creative, it's like I'm exposed. So of course, if I can sort of do it perfectly, what I'm trying to do is mitigate the fear around vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So in turn, that's going to make me more aversive to, or I'm going to not want to walk towards challenges because if I don't know I'm going to nail it, like I'm not even going to put myself out there. Yeah. There's a saying that says if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right, which is the exact opposite of done is better than perfect. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, There's so much value in just showing up. And when we sort of look at it in particular fields or arenas, we do our best work. We are creative. We're really our best selves when we practice the art of just showing up, right? And so if I'm always jockeying for perfection, ironically, my lens, the lens of my mind is focused on an outcome and not the effort in a direction, It's sort of as if I'm bracing myself for the hit before I ever know I'm going to get hit. Yeah, that reminds me of like being paralyzed. Bracing for a hit means you're sort of like stuck in a a place, in a a motion or no movement. You're sort of prepared for something that's not actually coming. So you're preparing for the wrong thing, really, you know. Yeah. And ironically, so with that, when you're bracing yourself, you tend to constrain the way in which you think or see things, right? So your mental framework just got narrowed (laughs) tremendously. So it's like, I I can't then be creative. I have to stay within the confines of this box so that I'm sure never to fall out of line. 
except then I never get out of my mm-hmm. box. Yeah. I never do things that I don't know are going to be perceived well or received in a favorable way. I will be more robotic. Yeah. What's interesting is this idea that Brené brings up, which is this concept of a shield. Yeah. Right. That people use perfectionism or the pursuit of being perfect mm-hmm. as this shield to protect against the three things that we don't want often to happen when we seek connection, which is blame, judgment, or shame. Mm-hmm. And that concept of a shield is like, you know, obviously a shield does what in its metaphor or its literal context is it shields you, it blocks something from getting you that you don't want to get you, whatever it might be. It could be a sword, it could be blame, it could be judgment, it could be shame. But the point is, is that, you know, we will often unintentionally use the pursuit of perfectionism, being perfect, as a shield and not know it just in our everyday life. Just, you know, sometimes it takes a wake-up call. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, just get that done. Don't seek perfectionism. Right. Because you're just trying to shield yourself from something that's – that you should just put yourself out there. You know what I mean? Like kind of get out of that rigid framework. Yeah. And so, you know, when we talk about this today, you know, as a, a construct – Perfectionism is this means of running away from the possibility of shame, right? And we've talked about shame in earlier episodes and what it does to our brain. But shame is really, as a construct, this sense of not being enough, like feeling like there's an inherent defect. So no amount of striving is actually going to create the outcome that I need in order to feel better, Hence why it's so like Mm self-perpetuating. And now I'm stuck on this wheel of like keep going and you got to do more and you got to do more. And it's out of a place of sort of compensation. If I believe that there's something wrong with me, I'm going to do everything in my power to prove that there is nothing wrong. (laughs) Right? And nobody can can sustain that over a lifetime. Like if it's defensive – You know, defenses are designed to protect and to help us buffer other things in life. Well, too much pressure on that one defense system, it's going to break. Because all it takes is the right sort of context, situation, or sort of intersecting variables and like, oh, shoot, I couldn't keep up. What you have to really ask, though, is, is why are people so focused on this external approval? Well, you just nailed it. That's where it goes awry is if and when my sense of self, like my belief about who I am and what I can do is based on, dare I say, predominantly based on the feedback from other people. That's when it doesn't work well. Mm. Because it's literally like somebody sees behind my mask that I'm then not, you know, acceptable or lovable and that it's any small failure that I then encounter is a major threat to being both discovered and then rejected. Well, how do you combat that then? So it's not advocating don't seek perfectionism, don't seek being perfect. It's the opposite of that, which is, you know, where do you find your worth? And maybe even beyond that, how can you 
be more secure in who you are, who you believe right. you are, and not rely upon the feedback of others to have that as a foundation. Sure, you're going to have the feedback from others speak into that, right? It's not so much to decouple yeah. it and to remove it. It's just to say, you said predominant. What if you can flip that and say, well, the majority of my self-worth is derived from what I perceive as my self-worth versus allowing others right. to speak into that and change it. Yeah, look, everybody is wholly entitled to their own opinion of what they like and what they think is good enough or acceptable, but you know, we're we're all mm -hmm. different. Like nobody starts really in the same place. I mean, genes play a role, environment plays a role, opportunities, like there's so many things that each individual, you know, comes to the plate with. So going, you know, you need to perform at this level or because I perform at that level, so I'm going to hold you to my own expectations doesn't necessarily work. So it is a decoupling of saying I can't solely base my self-perception on the feedback from one, just anyone, and two, how do I, to some degree, create a filter around the feedback I do get from other people? Like I always give the analogy, not that I can relate with this in any way, but if I were in the grocery store checkout line and somebody, the cashier told me about how I was doing as a mom because my kids were losing their cool as toddlers mm -hmm. for whatever reason. It's not to say, you know, she couldn't give me feedback, he or she, give me feedback about how I'm doing as a mom because my kids are melting down and maybe, you know, it's irritating mm -hmm. or whatever. Or I'm not being the sort of meeting the expectation of parenting at that moment. But who does, does this person mm. know me? Like, do they know who I am? Do they see me like outside of this context? Do they know my children? Do they know what time of day it is? Like, there's so many things that give context to that situation. And so for me to go, it's not like I might not be affected by what she says. But if I'm to say my sense of myself as a mother is rooted in the feedback I get from a person working in a job at a checkout stand, like that's probably not the most right. helpful feedback. Because well, that person's feedback is limited to their awareness, experience, and understanding of your life. And it's just a fraction, a moment. And it's mm -hmm. also based on a majority of assumptions. It could be comparative to the person prior to you, which may have been more collected, not losing their cool. Right. But completely different context, potentially. You know, so yeah. there's a lot of assumption even in there. There's a saying that says around assume, right? Which we won't see on right. the show because, hey, yes. that's just a little crass. And we have a very wide-filled audience and we don't cuss on the show. But the point is, is you know what happens when you assume. Things yeah. happen. Right. And so when we're talking about perfectionism, you say – what do we do? Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. And while we've talked about it in sort of general terms, I want to talk about it from the perspective of how researchers have sought to yeah. clarify it. I don't know how familiar our listeners are in terms of different 
things in terms of research, but doing research or research, what investigators look at is aspects of reliability or validity. Are you familiar with these? I'm not a an expert researcher, but I can imagine <laughs> you want validity and reliability in your research and the data. Yes. That would make sense. Well, so basically validity says like, is what we're measuring or how we're looking at this actually right. that? So it's like, is it true? And then reliability says like, hey, if, if somebody else were to repeat exactly our research, would they get the same outcome? So what I want to talk about is this perfectionism in terms of its validity. So researchers said, let's break this down. Like what makes up perfectionism? And so there was a researcher who created this test called the Multidimensional Perfectionism Scale. It was developed by Robert Frost. And so he identified six different factors that are usually displayed by people who struggle with perfectionism. And so they include, one, excessive concern over making mistakes, two, high personal standards, three, doubts about the quality of their actions, four, the perception of high parental expectations, five, the perception of parental criticism, and then six, preference for organization and orderliness. That's a lot, right? Well, I can identify with many of those personally. <laughs> sure. To some degree. Sure. And and I right. think many of us can, right? But this is just it. Just because you do some of these things doesn't mean like there's something right. wrong with you. That's why I prefer to think of every topic we talk about in terms of what's functional and what is not as functional or what works well, like is adaptive and what doesn't work well, which is maladaptive. So in this, one of the things that they found is it really is this sort of excessive concern over making mistakes that contributes to people who have more difficulty, right? Because if I am so concerned, like just what we were talking about earlier with outcomes, if I'm trying to mitigate a potential ill outcome, aren't I going to be really concerned? And probably not yeah. show up. Well, you're too busy being concerned. Yeah. <laughs> right? To show up. Yeah. Like, what, were, what were you doing? I was being concerned. <laughs> right. And so with this, that sort of doubts about the quality of their actions, like I see that or hear that sort of similar to this undercurrent of anxiety, right? Sort of suspicion around how good am I doing? Mm. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> right? So concern over mistakes is significant, and then the sense of doubt about the quality of your actions, right? Well, there was this other researcher named Daniel Molnar who is out of Brock University in Canada, and she looked at perfectionism as it relates to health in general of people. And what she looked at, she took 500 Canadian adults between the ages of 24 and 35, and so she broke the construct of perfectionism down into three different lanes, so to speak. She talked about perfectionism in terms of self-oriented, socially prescribed, or other-oriented, okay? So self-oriented perfectionism is wherein individuals impose high standards on themselves. I'm sure you never no, do that, never. Adam. Mm -mm. Never, right? <laughs> That's how you've gotten so far in life, right? Some might say. Low bar. <laughs> so self-oriented perfectionism, like I just have these expectations that I've got to adhere to or achieve. 
Then there's socially prescribed perfectionism, wherein individuals feel like others expect them to be perfect. And then other-oriented, where individuals place high standards on others. So like everybody needs to then adhere to Adam's standards for work, right? (laughs) That would be really challenging because who's got the same standard? Mm. Yeah. Right? So people experience these different perfectionistic traits to various degrees. So one person might score high on all three, but they might just fall sort of in an extreme in one or two of those, not all of those. And so she found that socially prescribed perfectionism, this researcher, Molnar, this socially prescribed perfectionism, okay, was associated with poor physical health, which then means, guess what else happens? <laughs> you end up seeing the doctor more often. You probably have to take time off of work in order to go to the doctor and gave themselves lower scores when it came to rating their own health. Yeah. Who would have thought? I mean, when we started talking today, were you like, oh, I had no idea my perfectionism could affect my health. Well, I guess it would kind of make sense because if you feel the pressure from others mm-hmm. to perform at a certain level, which may not be in line with, one, your capability or your own personal expectation, you might feel anxious mm-hmm. or have anxiety, which is the starting step to other you know, mental health things that can occur. So it would make sense right. that you know, that kind of person in that kind of scenario or that with this, I guess it's probably a lot of people, you know, not just, you know, an individual. It's probably a lot of people dealing with this kind of situation in the spider web, essentially of, you know, I'm anxious and now other things come from that. Yeah. Well, so even thinking about this, I can't help but move this into the lane of work because I think a lot of people work. Social pressures there. Yeah. And in the workplace, we want to perform well, right? So maybe you wouldn't say perfectionism in the workplace is a negative thing. But if I don't learn how to navigate myself, my mind, my energy in helpful ways, I then become a sort of vicarious participant in my own challenges that Mm. I complain about. It's interesting because an expectation of someone else on you is the standard of perfect, right? So if in work we're rewarded for, you know, performance, for meeting expectations, which, as I just said, I think it's synonymous with the standard of perfection because if someone says, this is what I expect of you, and you strive towards that, that's, and if you meet that, then, well, you've hit a perfect score. You've reached perfectionism in that particular area. And so... We're judged constantly in the workplace by our adherence to going towards and meeting or not meeting that standard, that expectation. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can I take it a step further then and talk about it in terms of goodness of fit? Sure. Between what you do, right? So going, what if there is a marked difference between your expectations and your boss's or your colleagues' expectations of your performance? Mm. Now what? Yeah. I mean, I think there's certainly a requirement to do a job, you know, so if you just sort of like break it down to 
you know, what do we need someone in this position to do to adequately perform this position? That makes sense. You're going to have that. But the flexibility around that, especially when it comes to somebody else's expectations of it, it can get a little bit fungible, I suppose. Blurry. Right. Yeah. Well, I think about this, like, for example, in the context of any sort of startup company, right? When you're doing startup, there's usually a lot of work involved, right? And a few people are doing a lot of the work. Right. Well, what if that sort of culture or expectation, once the company has been more established, it's it's established some degree of longevity, performance, but those expectations never go away? Or, you know, we, we say expectations as if people or bosses are going to say that those are their expectations. But what if your sense or perception is that this is what your boss expects of you, even though they then don't tell you that that is their expectation of you? Well, that's just wrong. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> that's just wrong. <laughs> but it creates this conflict, right? Because if you care and you have these high standards to say, I want to perform well in my job, and yet the feedback I'm getting is, you know, I need to do more or do better, but at what cost? Is it costing me my health or other aspects of my life, relationships, Mm -hmm. or other things I simply care about investing in? Yeah. It's easy if you have a time-constrained job, I suppose. If your work is performed within an hour spectrum, so let's say, you know, most standard way is nine to five, right, in terms of those hours. Like if you're doing your job or performing within those areas, then maybe the health constraints and the family life constraints, and maybe now it's more skewed because of work from home being more prevalent. Yeah. But, you know, I think that if you're expected to work between nine and five and that's when your work occurs and any sort of expectation outside that spectrum, maybe you have less interruption into personal life, into personal health. But then again, you might need to go to a doctor or do routine visits for dental work or whatever it might be. And if you don't have a flexible enough workload or expectation load in your job to be able to do those things in the routine manner, then that's certainly going to like impact your work. What if it's for mental health reasons, seeing a therapist? What if it's going to the gym yeah. at, at, at lunchtime because that's when you can fit it in? And everybody's an individual. Right. You know, maybe – Sure, you could maybe get up earlier. Yeah. Potentially. But the point is, is like, what if you needed a more flexible schedule and your expectations at work were too rigid or too not flexible enough to allow for that life and work to blend and balance as necessary? Yeah. And and what if, like, along with that to say, well, I perceive, I believe that my boss's expectations are that I have to keep sort of churning Mm -hmm. and burning, right? Like just keep going. So I can't work out. I can't go to the doctor. I don't have time. I got to eat my lunch at my desk because I need to keep outputting and reaching that expectation. That can't work. So, you know, it's interesting talking about this too from research perspective and going, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review that talked about this. And this research asked the question, are perfectionists better performers at work? Do they, in comparison, you know, output more or in what way are they better performers? 
And so there is a meta-analysis of 95 studies. And if you don't know what a meta-analysis is, what that means is they didn't actually run the research themselves with actual participants, okay? A meta-analysis in terms of research goes and looks at everybody else's research and then goes, what can we extrapolate or infer from the themes of all of that research? Does that make sense? Yeah. So these studies took place from the 1980s to today and examined the relationship between perfectionism and the factors that impact employees' effectiveness. So these studies included nearly 25,000 working age individuals. That's a pretty big sample Mm -hmm. size, right? So what they found in the short answer was this, that perfectionism is a much bigger weakness than job applicants and interviewers probably assume. Mm. They results predicted that there were some beneficial workplace outcomes, like perfectionists tend to be more motivated on the job, work longer hours, and can be more engaged. But I don't know that people think about this when they're going about their work or they're interviewing. Like, I always think about things in terms of the question behind the question. Mm. Like, generally speaking, when people ask questions, there's usually another question that's behind the question I'm actually getting. Right. What are you really asking? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> because somebody's trying to fit that my response or feedback to them into their construct that right. they've already got, which is the other question leading their question. Manipulation to some degree even. <laughs> yeah, but right, not always right, an intentional, right. right? So, with this research, what they found is there's two distinct but related sub-dimensions of perfectionism, right? See, so researchers try to look at this construct from a number of different angles and go, what can we find? And so they delineated between excellence-seeking perfectionism, say that 10 times fast, excellence-seeking, which involves this tendency to fixate on and demand high standards, and then failure-avoiding perfectionism, which involves this obsessive concern and aversion to failing to reach high performance standards. Yeah. Got that? (laughs) So excellent seeking perfectionists not only try to evaluate their own performance, but also, guess what? Hold this high performance expectation for others in their lives. So I'm not only talking about the workplace, but like in the home too. Whereas failure-avoiding perfectionists are worried that their work is not quite right or good enough and believe that they're going to lose respect from others if they don't reach their level of perceived perfection. Both of those show up in the workplace, right? They sure do, yeah. Because if I'm trying to live up to a standard, this excellent seeking, or avoid not quite right or good enough, I mean... I'm really going to struggle with putting any work out there. And ironically, some of this, like the failure avoiding perfectionism could look like procrastination. I don't know. Have you ever thought about the reason behind your procrastination? I'm not saying you procrastinate, Adam. Sure. Everybody does. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Well, that's the awareness that comes into place. Like, you know, what is making me not do this, which can often define the next step towards doing it because – you may not be doing something because of the shield we talked about earlier. You, you may be seeking right. to do it well, and maybe that's a variation of perfection 
But the point is, is that, you know, when you procrastinate against something, you're shielding from some sort of, you know, negative response of some sort, you know, and right. the next good step can be surmised by examining why you haven't taken the necessary step to reach the goal or do the thing or have the outcome. Yeah. So I think about these sort of like, I'm like, how can I make it even simpler? Excellent seeking is sort of the like relentless burn. Like you got to go and go like burning the candle right. at both ends phenomenon. Right. Whereas failure avoiding is, you know, sort of the buffering from the bad. I'm always trying to buffer. So am I burning, you know, trying to output as much as I can at my expectation or am I trying to buffer against like mm. the shielding? Yeah. Oh, shoot. It wasn't enough. I, I never considered right? the the procrastination side being a dimension, as they say here, a subdimension of perfectionism. Yeah. Like, you know, the opposite. You're not trying to excel. You're trying to under excel by not failing. Right. Or avoiding failure. Mm hmm. And that's uh, an interesting extreme that you see on both sides there. What's, is there a, a, a third subdimension that's sort of the middle ground there? What's the middle between excellence seeking and failure avoiding? Well, these researchers didn't delineate between those, but that's an awesome question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because th there's always, you know, extremes right and left of a scenario of a spectrum, you know, so what's in the middle there? Right. Which might be like a normal performing perfectionism standard. I don't know. <laughs> well, so we can talk about it in terms of what is healthier or sort of healthier perfectionism or normal neurotic. Like no. it really has to do, right? That's funny. <laughs> um, you have to sort of look at what you're focusing on. So in this context, if I'm looking at whether I'm trying to burn something and, and do it like to a high standard or buffer against, that focus is going to provide it different outcomes. So the beneficial effects, like the good side of perfectionism, we're stronger for those who are higher in this excellence seeking. So the ones who are like, let me try to do my best in everything, as opposed to aversion, the ones who avoid, which makes sense, right? If I'm like, I got to move, I got to get better, that that sense of striving. And, and maybe instead of my normal neurotic, we substitute sort of healthy striving, right? I'm, I'm, the effort is put forth in a direction repeatedly over time. Like there's a d sense of delight and joy and positive emotion mm -hmm. around like, I get to try again. So that's the, the beneficial side. But the detrimental side was stronger for those who actually have this failure avoiding, but also still had the excellent seeking, which makes a lot of sense. If I've got both sides, like I want to buffer from the mm -hmm. bad, but then I'm, I'm trying to excel I mean, it's like hokey pokey. I take two steps, you know, forward and one step back. Like I put my foot in and take it back out because I'm not sure. Which if I'm going back to the researcher I talked about earlier, Robert Faust, with concern over mistakes. Yeah. And that high, you know, personal standards. That's where the rub really doesn't work. Because I'm never going to get it. I'm afraid to err, but I also have really high standards. I got to practice doing the work and put myself out there if I'm going to approximate my own standards, right? Right. Would it be then if you identify as a perfectionist and to agree with what this research has said around excellent thinking and 
figure avoiding to sort of balance those two. So if you have more of a balance of those aspects, so recognizing that as a perfectionist, if this is how you identify, you know, as a perfectionist, yeah. I can I can see based on this research and see it in their own work and their own practices and perspectives, et cetera, that they see the excellent seeking, which is the opposite of failure avoiding, right? Like if you're excellent seeking, you, you sort of yeah. know what you're running away from, which is the failure. And if you're failure avoiding, you're you're not so much not seeking the excellence, but you're sort of like delaying or, you know, deterring or whatever right. it might be around certain things, essentially to balance these two as best you can. Right. What is healthy perfectionism then? Like if you've been listening, like, okay, well, that's great. Now I know what doesn't work. Tell me what does. Yes, please. <laughs> so what does work? <laughs> it is really having these high standards is not a bad thing. Okay. You can have those and work towards them because they're what motivate you forward, right? I mean, I am always considering this and I think a lot of people, you know, who have goals and going, I want to get better. I I want to challenge myself. I want to move up in the workplace or I want to expand the breadth of skill that I've got. But when I'm then looking at any concern over mistakes or that failure avoidance, that I'm going to pull in this other thread that helps me manage that differently. And so that focus is going to look at the buy-in, sort of asking myself this question, like, is it worth it? Why would I do this thing that has the potential for failure or the potential for increased vulnerability or, you know, rejection or, God forbid, the Mm -hmm. loss of my job? Why would I do it? I think for some reason because showing up pays in dividends. You know, like you need to keep showing up or I don't know. There's numbers in the fact that if you keep showing up and keep doing that, something will result of it. Yeah. And so this sense of focus on effort and opportunity, right? Does it matter to me? Like, is it worth it if I fail? Like, I think I've shared this in other episodes about Brené Brown's work as it relates to daring Mm -hmm. greatly. It's the man in the arena who counts. It's the one who's willing to get dirty, get, you know, experience loss and hardship because they're trying to push themselves forward towards their desired Mm. ideals. There was the University of Texas at Austin um, had specifics in regards to this where it related to healthy striving they said this setting standards that are high but are within reach right if i want to go how can i make mini goals so that i'm to some degree again buffering the possibility of threat or loss yeah right enjoying the process like i tend to make sense of this so much in the lane of health and exercise Right. And going, what am I trying to work on? What am I getting better at? This is why people run marathons. Right. This is why, I mean, why do you ride your bike, Adam? I like it. It's fun. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, that's a deep subject, but it, it, yeah, it's, it's the process, right? It's if you keep and the outcome together, right? Sure. You, the process that moves you towards where you want to get to. Right. Yeah. You have to have some goals, but you also have the step in between there to get you there. That's process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so with that, just like your son said, you got to yeah. bounce back. Yeah. 
right? If you fall, you practice right. getting back up. And look, if you put yourself out there and say, this is what I care most about and here's what I'm optimizing for, isn't it pretty normal to think you're going to have some anxiety? I would think so. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, you're going to think about, I'm not really sure how you even define anxiety, but let me take a stab at what I think, how it might manifest is that if you are concerned about an outcome and you're carefully watching for its progress, the tension that you feel as that comes about or not is anxiousness. Yes. Well that said. tension, right? Yep. And so I would imagine that if you're paying attention to your life and setting outcome goals or setting goals generally or having some sort of progress in anything, whether it's health, fitness, work, you know, school, whatever it might be, your job, you're going to be paying attention to those details. And there's always going to be tension. Yeah. Great word. I love it because that's just it. There's an uncertainty around the outcome, but that is also held alongside of yeah. the desire. Right. And so with that, see mistakes as opportunities for growth and learning. Like mistakes are part of the learning yeah. process. That's how we figured out like Edison, right? He just figured out how many hundreds of ways That's right. <laughs> that a light bulb doesn't work. Then finally, because you're trying to manage vulnerability, it's not surprising to think that you might be kind of reactive around criticism. And in the workplace, we could talk about it in terms of feedback, but perceived criticism, if you are sort of perfectionistic, like you already got your ideal <laughs> And then somebody has wants to tell you something about yeah. how you did. Might go bad. Yeah. <laughs> you might have a few feelings about that experience. And that's understandable. Yeah. But recognizing, like, again, who's on my team? Who understands the effort I'm putting forth? We've brought this, you know, around so many times, but I can't speak enough to the value of relationship and having those people. Mm-hmm who help you buffer some of these challenges and upsets and disappointments. That's a great point because that's what I was thinking about is this board of advisors, you know, going back to the, uh, the clerk scenario that may have spoken some words into your life for that brief moment. You know, you might value the feedback or criticism they give you for your life, but at what depth? You know, you allow your board of advisors, this, this tribe you surround yourself with to speak that deeply into you. Not somebody who has a fraction of your moment of life, zero context, zero understanding of who you are, what your goals in life are. You know, that's who, if we're seeking perfection and we have this shield in front of us to push back against the shame, to push back against the, the feedback we get in life, we need to understand who the shield is trying to protect us from, right? Yeah, right. And people are going to have things to say about how we perform. Yeah. Like, I'm sure this happens just in people's relationships. Yeah. Right? And going, I I mean, I was trying to give you what you wanted. I was trying to do something. I thought you'd appreciate me unloading the dishes or packing the dishwasher. But then you get the feedback. Mm -hmm. You did it wrong. Yeah. I mean, my wife is the one who speaks most deeply into me. You know, if she believes in me. I believe in me twice as much because she believes in me or, you know, whatever it might be the same. If she criticizes me, I take it doubly because 
you know, she knows me. She knows who I am as a man, who I am as a father, who I am as a husband, who I am as a son, you know, and she knows all the parts of me. And so she knows truly what I'm optimizing for. Yep. And so I take her criticism, both good and bad, very deeply because she knows me so well. And that's the point. Exactly. Is the shield is who knows you so well that the feedback is worth receiving. Right. And so with this, it gets a little trickier in the workplace because, I I mean, obviously you're not most of the time going to have that sort of relationship, you know, with a boss or a colleague. But professionally, they will know you. So they're going to... They'll know you professionally. Right. Well, however, if you're trying to buffer against that failure, you're actually forfeiting them knowing you and knowing the work you actually can do. So... It doesn't actually work in your favor. Mm. So you're saying that vulnerability in that case, you have to examine it further to truly understand it because there's benefits in being vulnerable in those scenarios. Not truly vulnerable, like here's my life story, here's all my failures and tribulations, but more so so they can have more context of you and who you truly are and what you're trying to optimize for. Because in some ways your bosses and your you know, overseers, however you define them, they're in some ways a guide to your trajectory. Correct. And so in what way do you let them in on what you're trying to optimize for and around and what you care most about? I mean, if they knew that like for this particular task, you set up different constraints because you're like, look, I'm trying to work on my productivity within a shortened amount of time. So maybe there were some other flaws in it. Well, that context played a factor in the outcome you got. But if you didn't bring them into that data point, how would they know? Yeah. Then they're not going to respond to you from that perspective. Well, they won't have a full understanding of what you're trying to do at all. Exactly. You're not setting them up to have the necessary context for the opposite of rigidity, which is flexibility, right? Set them up for a flexible criticism towards you maybe even grace, because they understand what you're trying to do. Right. And so when I'm talking about what's healthy striving versus perfectionism, this is another key thing, is you acknowledge the contextual factors, which also played a role in the outcome of the task you were trying to do. Because, look, if I didn't have access to another tool that I needed in order to do the job to meet my standards. Doesn't that count? Yeah. Because my output would have looked different had I had access to the tool that I wanted. My perspective on this is very specific. So I've recently built several mountain bikes and it's interesting to build a a bike from the frame up. And what I learned was that having the right tool is crucial, right? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I couldn't build the bike, oh, so I, I yes. failed at bleeding brakes, which is a difficult task. It's more difficult when you don't have mm-hmm. the right tools, right? Right. And so I, for a while, felt like a failure because I couldn't bleed brakes. And what I realized was, oh, I was missing this particular tool that when compressing the brakes later on, the fluid didn't come out. Well, that's because I torqued the nut to the necessary specification. Had I had the right tool, I would have torqued it properly. Right. So tools are important. Yes. The right tool is important to achieve a goal or a task. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so 
that's where you can start to look at what other things could help me manage this goal that I have differently. Is there a tool? Is there a person? Is there a thing that would be helpful instead of trying to just sort of either avoid or like just Mm -hmm. wreck it and break it (laughs) because I'm trying so hard to push for something that doesn't work well. I really love having these conversations because I even see it with you when we're talking about these sort of ahas and and ways in which our conversations make you think differently. And that's what I want for all of our listeners. And recognizing, ironically, one of the greatest tools we have access to is our mind and the way in which we assimilate data from different points. When it comes to trying to jockey for and around that ideal, like there is nothing wrong with having high standards, especially for yourself. But you need to be able to consider the value of effort over outcomes. That if I stay in it and asking yourself, like, is this worth it? Do I want to embrace the sort of possible aversive things that could come with it for the delight that I could cultivate? That's when you begin to buffer in a helpful way and you focus your efforts on aspiring as opposed to requiring something of yourself and progress over perfection. All right, now it's time to head to the comments and let us know what you think about perfectionism. Is this something you struggle with? I know I do at times. And there was a lot of stuff we talked about that really got me thinking. Let us know what you're thinking. Head to changelaw.com slash science slash two zero. This is episode 20. Open up your show notes and click discuss on changelaw news. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd also love for you to join us in Slack. It's totally free. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Join us in the Brain Science Slack channel. Talk with me, Marielle, and others from the community. Of course, huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Head to changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. It is one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening to Brain Science. We'll see you again soon.